Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Uh, please don't forget the donate button, subscribe and share. And in a few seconds, we'll be back with part two of my conversation with Bob Smith, the former Washington correspondent for the New York Times. We're going to be talking about his book, Suppressed Confessions of a Former New York Times Washington Correspondent. I thought one of the more recent examples of bias that you're talking about in the New York Times is their whole cover coverage of what some people are now calling Russiagate. Uh, like, how is it the New York Times, after all the experience we have with being lied to by the U.S. intelligence agencies, how do you believe what they say just on the face of it? I mean, I have actually no opinion whatsoever whether Russia interfered in the, tw in the uh, elections. Uh, I have no opinion whatsoever about what Trump or did or didn't do in the Ukraine and so on. But I, I, I cannot take stuff that I see in the New York Times and other publications that simply quote the US, American intelligence agencies without revealing what the actual story is. How, and why would a journalist, you know, unless it's biased that you just want to go out and attack Trump because it makes your paper money? Well, uh, it's not necessarily, remember the journalist is operating at a different level. The journalist's incentives are uh, he, he, well, they vary as they do in all fields for all of us. But I mean, typically, a, a journalist would like to be recognized as a really good journalist. And uh, that's different from making the paper money. You know, that goes back to the old shibboleth about, oh, print anything that'll sell the paper. I, you know, the 1940s, 1950s, people routinely said, oh, yeah, they'll put anything there that'll sell the paper. Remember when it was in a news box in the corner or somebody was passing uh, um, the paper around and saying, oh, you know, today's uh, news, whatever. Um, so I'm not sure it's quite like that. You would have to posit, uh, you may be right, but you would have to posit that uh, the, the people who are running the enterprise, uh, their need or uh, desire to, to make money filters down to uh, the reporters who were and editors who were handling the copy. And I, I'm, I'm not at all sure about that because they don't have the same direct, it's not like a Silicon Valley startup where they have a direct interest in the revenue taken into. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I don't think it's so direct that a journalist says, oh, I'll go along with such and such because it will make the paper money. But I, I, I got to know a, a few years ago uh, I was working out of a newsroom uh, in D.C. Uh, I had a separate operation, but we had a kind of shared the office space. And it was a, a big publication. And the guy that covered national affairs and especially economics, uh, I, I had this conversation with him where I said, you know, clearly th this is a class society. Clearly the elites, the financial elites, are enriching themselves, you know, in unprecedented historical levels. There's almost no accountability. Nobody goes to jail in 07, 08 for outright fraud in the financial sector. I mean, and he and I are talking about this and he's agreeing with what I'm saying about, you know, that the extent to which political power in Washington is so uh, controlled by 
campaign finance and particularly from the finance sector. And then I said to him, well, I don't understand. Why don't you ever write about this? I mean, I don't, you know, you're, you and I are agreeing on all this stuff, but I never see any of this in your columns. And he said, I got a mortgage. I got my kids go to private school. He says, if, if I don't stay within a certain lane of what I report on, and I, and I, you know, what I was saying, he didn't have to give his opinion. There's many ways this is, you know, fact-based reporting would have made these points without making it an opinionated piece. But he says, if I don't, if I don't stay within such and such lane, I'm accused of having an agenda. Today, he'd be welcomed for having an agenda if it were the right agenda. Exactly. If it's the same agenda as the publication, yeah. But, but you know, uh, there's also a sort of um, uh, acculturation of ownership by the source, so to speak, I think of it, uh, that, that took place that, that wasn't exactly what you're describing, but had a parallel effect. It's this. It's in the book. Uh, at one point, I was leaked. Um, I think it was by the control of the currency uh, office. Um, uh, someone there, I mean, um, a list. And the list was the government's view, or at least Toronto, the currency's view, and they're the regulators, of, uh, of uh, problem banks. Banks with problems. They kept the list. So I got the list. You'd think this is a great story, wouldn't you? I mean, hey. So I, I want to do the story. And so the, sitting behind me at that time were the two, there were only two what we call biz in business financial reporters, right? And they were very bright people. Uh, and I said, gee, you know, I think it's a good story. And they both said, no, we won't touch it. No, we won't touch it. I said, well, for heaven's sake, why not? It's the government saying this. You know, I didn't want to quarrel with them. They're reporters. They might colleagues and friends. Well, obviously, they, they didn't want to touch it. So I did. And uh, the New York Times touched it. And we printed it. Uh, uh, and that was remarkable. So a lot depends here, Paul, on the individual reporter, as you're being kind enough to point out. Uh, and, you know, if you present them, you present the editors with the story, it's very hard for them if everybody sort of knows intuitively what a good news story is uh, to say, no, we're not going to print this. Say, well, why not? And I'll give you one follow up on that, if I may. Uh, at one point, I was covering uh, uh, the foreign uh, multi or multinational corporations giving uh, bribes purportedly uh, and in fact overseas, right? So I was covering uh, a number of uh, entities that were looking into this, and preeminently a Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee subcommittee. All right. So I got this wonderful letter. I mean, I think it's one of the funniest and most effective things I ever got, leaked or given or whatever it was. Um, it was a letter from a lawyer for Lockheed, I think it was. Uh, who was in Geneva in Switzerland dealing with the people Lockheed was bribing or the conduit for the bribes to government officials so they'd get to build the airplanes, get the contract. So, uh, <laughs> so this lawyer, he's sitting there and uh, writing in uh, Swiss Hotel Stationery, and he's extremely candid. He says, well, if you look in your code book, look up antelope, something, whatever, and you know whom I'm talking about, 
And he said, we're going to have to pay more because the Italians and the French are offering more and so on and so on. And at the last paragraph of this, it was only, you know, I don't know, 10, 12 paragraphs, I can't remember. Uh, he says, and you you might say, well, why are they, why is he talking to me like this? Why is he? And they said, because I'm a lawyer. It was hilarious. Here's this American lawyer being trusted. <laughs> okay. So, but it perfectly makes the case they were paying bribes. There's no question about it. Good. Great story. Great story. So I write it. And I send it where? Where did you go? To BizFin, to Business Financial. Do they run it? No. Now, how could they not run it? It so upset me that they didn't run it that I turned around and I was writing regularly for the news of the week of the, in review in the Sunday paper. And they were taking my stuff every week, uh, a lot of weeks. And uh, they were turning it down. When I wrote, they ran. So I, wrote, I took exactly the same story, didn't touch it, and sent it to the News of the Week in Review on Sunday, which has a much bigger audience, right? They ran it. They ran it. And then Monday, I come into the office, and the editor, I'll never forget it, walks up to me um, in mid-morning and says, Bob, uh, Biz Finn is calling. They want to know why you didn't give them this. <laughs> open the desk and showed them the duplicates. But the point is, if you're determined and you're a journalist, you'll, you, you get it in somewhere. Unfortunately, there's not too many of such. But anyway, uh, talk, talk about the Watergate story. Why didn't the New York Times, what happened and why didn't they want to cover the Watergate story? The why is elusive. What happened is I had lunch my last day at the paper, the next day I was going off to law school. So what year are we in? Uh, 1972. And uh, I uh, i don't know why I had lunch that day with the director, director, director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, with whom I got along very well. I liked the guy. And apparently he liked me. But whatever, we got along. So we had lunch at a French uh, restaurant in uh, Washington. Excuse me. And we sit down. I'm on a banquet. I'm wearing my, you know, college, still my college tweed jacket. I have my notebook. And it's a crowded French restaurant. And I'm sitting there and he begins to tell me about Watergate with the names. And I, I'm so astonished. I can't take out my notebook because if I did, everybody in the room would know what's going on. So I, I have a notably bad memory for names. Okay, hang on here. What 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 did he tell you? He told me uh, that uh, he told me that about Segretti and what had happened. And I said, well, uh, he said it, it went through the Attorney General. I asked him, and I said, well, uh, you know, does he go to the president? I was in total disbelief over this lunch, right? Okay, just really quickly again. Let me very quickly for people that are younger. President Nixon uh, gets some of his plumbers operatives to break into the Watergate Hotel to the Democratic Party uh, headquarters and steal documents. And it's part of a campaign they hope they can use to sabotage the Democratic, uh, the candidacy of the Democratic nominee and so on. And they get caught. And then there's this whole unraveling uh, you know, there's the movie, if you don't know it, go watch All the President's Men. 
the big question is, what did the president know and when did he know it? So when is the FBI got, uh, acting director telling you this? And is he telling you that Nixon knew? Yes. Well, yeah, I said, and pick up the story, and he said, the, up to the president? Did he go up to the president? And he just sat there and looked at meaning yes. So I had the story. And I had it two months before Woodward and Bernstein began uh, uh, hitting the times over the head with the story. Uh, two months is a, in a journalistic uh, context is uh, a very, uh, is a, a remarkable amount of time. So I ran back to the Times Bureau, uh, grabbed the uh, news editor, Bob Phelps, put him in his office, uh, taped up a sign that said, do not disturb started a recording machine so I could give him the tape last night, confused myself since I'd be leaving, and uh, gave him a notebook and pen and said, listen, here's what happened. And uh, I don't know how long the briefing, a half hour, 40 minutes, whatever, I told him everything I knew. And uh, when I finished, he went out in the newsroom and there were, I don't know, three dozen present company accepted, really, really good reporters uh, in the Washington Bureau. And I assumed he'd get some of them to follow the story, whatever. Uh, I tooted off to New Haven and uh, started law school and I didn't see the story. I was completely bewildered that I didn't see the story, but I, I assumed, I mean, I was caught up in that first semester of law school, which honestly was a remarkable experience, just one of those experiences. But you, but you told the editor who your source was. Yes. He knows it's the acting director of the FBI. And this is not... Right. I told him. I said, you can't use his name. But yeah. Right. And uh, but I, I I assume people always say, well, why didn't you do something? And I said, well, gee, first off, I told him everything I knew. And secondly, it was the news editor of the bureau, the guy in charge. And 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 thirdly, there were a lot of good reporters. I assumed they had checked out what I'd given them and it wasn't right or something. I mean, it was bizarre to think otherwise. Right. Uh, and then uh, Woodward and Bernstein started um, superbly doing their stuff. And uh, the Times called me, can't remember anymore, October, November, whatever, somewhere in there, and said, please come back. And uh, I considered it. I said, give me a day and take it over. I, I know this sounds a bit odd, but I, it's a part of my personality that I sort of focus on one thing at a time. I want to be a really good mediator. I want to be a, my best kind of reporter. I can be sort of thing. So I was caught up in law school and and just loving it and, and so impressed by what I was learning that uh, I thought about it. And they said, listen, we'll pay for come You're coming back. We'll pay for you going back to Yale a year from now. Try to arrange with law school. Go ahead and try to arrange going back in a year. They'll understand. And I said, no, you know, this is I'm in the middle of an amazing experience. I don't want to do it. You've got lots of good reporters. But they wanted you to come back now to cover Watergate. Is that what the point was? Yes. And did they ever explain to you what the hell happened? Did you ever find out what happened? Right. I will just finish that story. I said, I'll do one. I'll do something for you. I'll call uh, my source because they didn't know they weren't the editor. And, and I'll, I'll try to see if I can get some more for you. And I, I called Pat, uh, the uh, FBI director, acting director, and uh, didn't return my call. Um, and there's, I have a whole theory about what happened there. But to answer your question directly, Years later, uh, I mean years later, um, I the uh, editor that I've given the story to uh, called me 
and uh, about something else. And uh, I said to him, please, wait, life is short. Why didn't you use the story? I mean, you know, he was a superb editor before that. I, I got the news editor of the Times Washington Bureau. I mean, you know, how could this happen? And he said, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? How can you not know? He said, well, I, I made a mistake. I said, well, yeah, but but come on. It's not credible. What what happened? What happened? He said, I don't know. Would you like me to take a truth serum? And I said, if it would help, yeah. <laughs> yeah, really? Really. So the answer is, I don't know. Jesus. He's got to be covering up. He has to run it up the flagpole of, of the hierarchy and they told him, shut it down. It's not, there's no other explanation. I have a whole chapter in the book uh, where I'm like a trial lawyer presenting the facts on both sides and saying to the reader, what do you think? And most people, I suppose, come to your sort of conclusion. I don't know. I haven't done a survey, but the other thing you should be aware of. No, I, I won't go there. No, go ahead. Go. No, go there. Go there. Well, I mean, it's in the book. I, I, I suppose um, if you were he, um, how would you make the determination as to whether to give that story to others to chase or not. How would you do that? If you're asking me, there's only two answers. One of two answers. You assign it, you do your job and you assign it to some journalists or you go to your boss and you cover your ass. And if the boss says bury it, uh, then you you bury it and you never acknowledge you were told to bury it because if you, I don't, I'm assuming the guy was still working there when he told you this. So. Oh, you mean when I asked him, what, what, what did you do? Take the truth serum? No, he yeah. was no longer working there. He got on to become, he got on to become uh, the chief editor of the Boston Globe. And then he retired. And then he wrote an autobiography uh, about uh, something about his relationship to God and to the New York Times. And I, I forgot the name of the book, actually. But uh, he, uh, if you're really interested in the topic, he, he uh, I, I think I was in England. I, I was uh, running the mediation, the commercial mediation circuit there, the, that part of the institution, and, and teaching the mediation at Oxford. I, I was asked. Um, by uh, somebody who had gotten a hold of a part of the story. They were doing a film in Hollywood and wanted me to be an advisor. And I said to myself, hey, I have made a promise and a commitment here to the FBI director. Now he's dead. Now, does that commitment continue? And I called the general counsel of the New York Times, you know, a fellow lawyer. And I said, here's what happened in detail. I was at the time, I remember I was in Oxford and I, I said, here's what, do, am I free to now tell the story? Can I talk to these people or not? Or does my obligation, my duty of confidentiality to the FBI director continue? What do you think? And he said, it continues. I said, well, I guess you're right. So I didn't say anything. And then when my editor called in terms of his book, he was wanting to write this in his book. 
he, he said, and he said, I'd like to send you the, the draft and you can read it. And I said, I don't really want to read it. You shouldn't be writing this. I gave you this with a promise of confidentiality to the director of the FBI, and you're breaching it. And you shouldn't breach it. And uh, he said, well, he's dead. I said, so what? His family's alive? I, I mean, we had this conversation. I, I just disagreed with him. But he went ahead and did what he wanted to do. And he, he said I'd give him the story and he had done nothing with it. This isn't just me, my saying this. He said it as well. He confirmed it. Now, can you imagine that circumstance? Not me. I can't imagine that he just buried it himself. I just can't imagine it. it, it to me, that story goes up to the level of the ownership. And they, they make the call. That's too big a story not to uh, work its way up the chain of command. Uh, well, maybe. I, I, I don't know the facts. And... No, I don't either. So we can speculate, but... It's hard. It's hard to believe. It's hard to fathom because it's at a time where the Vietnam War is still on. Right. It's at a time when such a story would be seen to to do what it did, blow up the presidency uh, and the political the historic political weight of what that story meant. Let me put it a different way. I am trying to proceed fairly and carefully here. And honestly, uh, suppose uh, you were an editor or executive or whatever of the paper, and suppose you thought you had very, very good sources or more likely very good source, very highly placed. And you went to the source with whom you regularly and routinely dealt um, and said, is it true? And suppose the source said, no, the president didn't do any such thing. This is not such. Well, then there's another story. Then it's the reverse of Judy Miller. Okay, then the other story then is, why is the acting director of the FBI trying to sabotage the president of the United States? It's either the director's right or he's lying to the New York Times journalist to sabotage Nixon, which is a story all by itself. Right, except that I pledge confidentiality to the FBI director. No, you'd have you'd have to go at the story through some other sources. You'd have to something, you know. That's that's right. You would, yeah. But isn't it isn't isn't it remarkable? Well, I think there's something almost I can't say similar, but there's something kind of like this going on now, where the media and at the very senior levels are not covering a story, to my mind, that's in plain sight, almost not covering it. And, and that's to do with the events of January 6th. And let me, I'll just give you my theory on this and try this out on you in the last minutes here. On January 4th, two days before what's being called an insurrection, whatever you want to call it, a, a, a whack of people led by some crazies actually go into the Congress. Which, but I think that what happened on the 6th is the second or third act of a failed coup attempt. The real story, I think, is what happened before January 6th. And, and here's the facts as I know them. On January 4th, 
in the uh, Washington Post, 10 former secretaries of defense uh, issue a, a letter, which, uh, which was, it turns out, organized by Liz and Dick Cheney, essentially warning acting Defense Secretary Miller not to let the military intervene and determine the outcome of the election. And that's a public op-ed by these 10 former secretaries of defense. On the same day, January 4th, Admiral Stavridis, who's the former Supreme Commander of NATO, has an article in Time magazine supporting the letter of the 10 former secretaries of defense. He goes even further. He says, we have a secretary, acting secretary of defense that doesn't have the I believe his word was character or backbone to stand up to a willful president. And he has the same kind of warning that the military needs to stay out of this. Same day, it's either, I may be off a day, it's either January 4th or 5th, but before the events of the 6th, the editorial board of the Financial Times has an editorial that ends with the words, as bizarre as it seems, a coup is now in progress. Editorial Board of the Financial Times. So some very serious people, at the very least, determine that there's enough going on with the possibility of a military intervention to make all these public statements to to fend it off. Now, what happens is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, the leaders of the Army, and I believe the Navy or the Air Force, anyway, two of the senior leaders come out very publicly saying the military will not get involved. And, I th and it seems pretty clear what happened is, is the military leadership also told Miller, we are not going to do this. And this attempted, what looks to me like attempted coup, fizzles out. The armed forces refuse to do. If, if in fact, uh, now apparently there's also reporting in both the New York Times and the Washington Post um, that part of what sparked Cheney, the two Cheneys to get this letter going was that there had been open conversations in the White House about the use, using the armed forces to intervene and uh, keep Trump in a president and call a new election. There was open conversations in the White House about it, which is the thing that really sparked the letter, plus Trump's phone call to the uh, governor of Georgia. In fact, in Admiral Stavridis's article in Time magazine, everything I'm talking about is in mainstream press. You know, so nothing I'm saying so far is speculative. I'm just repeating what's in these publications. Stavridis says that when the 10 secretaries of defense heard that Trump called the governor and asked him to reverse the decision on who won in Georgia, quote, a, a chill must have gone down their spines, meaning these 10 secretaries of defense. So some very serious people think that a coup was in progress. I don't think it's a big leap now for me to say that this storming of Congress was supposed to be the excuse for the military to come in and declare a state of emergency, which the leaders of the military refused to do. So it's, it's a failed coup attempt. But when you read the media now, 
and you read the, all the public, almost, almost all the publications now, it's all about the day of January 6th. There's almost no reporting on all of this that led up to it. And I, I find it bizarre that the Times, the Post, all these people know they were doing the reporting. Uh, what can I say? I, I don't know the facts, but somebody should get them. That is to say, I've heard you say that there are, and I believe you, that there all have all been printed in mainstream media, <clears throat> but no one's made the connections you have. I can't say nobody. There's a couple of other columnist types. There's a few people that have talked about it. You know, it's not like I'm the only one. Well, there was a woman in Politico. Uh, geez, I wish I, I could remember her name. Uh, she was involved in some of the uh, Mueller uh, investigation in some form. But she, she made this point. There's a few others. I'm not the only one saying this. But all the focus is on, is on the events of that day. And then Stavridis had a, a fascinating piece two weeks later in Time magazine where he talked about the extent to which the military, both active duty and retired, were involved in the events of January 6th. And he gave a very interesting statistic. He said that of the people being investigated by the FBI, 14% of the people being investigated are either active duty or retired military. And he says that's at a, when only 8% of the population are active duty or retired military. And then he goes on. Those weren't necessarily military leaders, generals, admirals, whatever those were. No, no, not, not at all. Served in Iraq and whatever. Whatever. But then the rest of the article is the extent to which the, uh, there has been recruitment of openly pro-Nazi, religious extremist, white nationalist, and the extent to which that exists within the U.S. military. And in the article, he calls for purging those people from the military. Now, I don't think this is an accident that it's a week and a half, two weeks after the events of January 6th, that this is what he writes. But also, I don't well, see... Well, why haven't I, forgive me, uh, uh, Paul, but... Uh, why haven't I seen any press follow-up? <laughs> that's well, yeah, that's my question. I know. That's my question. It's in it's in time. I'll send you the anybody wants the links, I'll put my article back up again. It has all the links to the press where these stories appeared. And uh, or look, just look up Stav Admiral Stavridis and Time magazine and so on. But I, I've got all the links in my piece. Serving Admiral is retired. <laughs> it's very interesting who he is now. He's retired, and he's one of the most senior executives of the Carlyle Group. What's the Carlyle Group? Oh, one of the biggest uh, hedge fund uh, venture capital funds, which has enormous investments in the military sector. Uh, um, uh, I'd like to see somebody do a piece about all this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, I, I pitched it. I pitched it to three or four publications and nobody was interested. Why? Because this is, there's a, there's this thing where it's what I was talking about earlier, because it sounds conspiratorial, but it is conspiratorial. I mean, it's not, it's, I mean, it's not so conspiratorial when it's all in the bloody public, public domain. Nothing I'm saying wasn't in mainstream publications. Hmm.
I don't know why the Okay, you want to know you want to know another thing that happened? Just to quickly throw this in. I did this story on video as well as in print and I I put it on YouTube and YouTube took it down. Why? Cuz in the in the in the piece I had a clip of Trump inciting the audience to go to Congress. So I I think the algorithm picked it up. Well, did you take out the clip and repost? Yeah. And you know what they did to me? They left the piece up and then they banned me from advertising forever on Google. Me personally, I can never advertise anything on Google again. And they won't tell me why. They say I egregiously violated their guidelines. And all I did was what more or less tell the story of what I just told you. And now I I went to the ACLU. Yes, I, I saw the yes. They think you're promoting conspiracy theory. Except every single thing in my piece came from mainstream publication. There wasn't anything in my report that wasn't a direct quote. I know I I'm, I know I don't know what can you say, but I'll I'll send you the stuff. <laughs> yeah, I I really look at. That's remarkable. And I don't want to get all the attention. And this has nothing to do with conspiracy theory or anything like that, but you motivate me to say, uh, which is what's developing. I, I just am realizing it over the last day or two. My book, my book, which is not a conspiracy book or anything, not a conspiracy book or anything like that. It's not incendiary. It's just historical and analytic. It's about journalism and and uh, about the country's division and journalism's role in it and about the way the press truly works and how the sausage is made. Okay, mainstream media are not reviewing the book, even though Kirkus and Publishers Weekly, or they haven't yet, Kirkus, Kirkus and Publishers Weekly, the two main review orga reviewing organizations have well reviewed the book. Uh, although uh, the book has uh, five stars on Amazon and all the rest. Yeah, I'd really encourage people to read the book. I think it's very important. And, and, and there's so much in the book that is in itself a news story. Like the Watergate story should be a news story. And, and it's, it's, it's a reflection of, of these, you know, these people, are, they want to stay in their lanes. Well, I can tell you I've been in very frequent uh, correspondence with the book reviewers at the Washington Post, and um, they've never uh, picked the book up, uh, reviewed the book. I mean, and certainly the New York Times has not, but I didn't expect them to. I thought maybe the Wall Street Journal would. But, and it, it doesn't appear, thank God, to have anything to do with the quality of the book. So, um, you know, uh, fortunately, there are a lot of uh, outlets. We live in a digital age, and uh, we'll we'll see. Uh, but it is remarkable to me that uh, this is uh, occurring. Well, you're like you're like a whistleblower, and I guess they don't like they don't, whistleblowers from inside their own group, uh, perhaps. Or you you know, let's be concrete and, and thoroughgoing and honest, the New York Times has a great deal of power and the New York Times book review has a great deal of power. 
and uh, one would be, have to be foolhardy, more foolhardy than I am, not to understand this. I, I knew this uh, before I wrote the book. Um, so there you are, but I'm determined uh, to get the message, uh, the main messages of the book out one way or the other. And happily, we live in an environment now where that's, uh, that's possible. I'll tell you uh, one last thing. Margaret Sullivan is the media reporter, or columnist, I guess, for the Washington Post. And in an email to me, she said the book was a very engaging read. I had sent her a copy of the book, but not a word about the book has appeared in the Washington Post. Mm. So in any event, enough of my uh, own uh, current uh, circumstances. But in a way, perhaps they fit with some of what you've been kind enough to say. I don't know. All right. Well, I encourage people to get the book. Suppress Confessions of a Former New York Times Washington Correspondent. There you go. It's everywhere. I mean, that's to say it's Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and right. your local bookstore. And now around the world through Amazon. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining me today, Bob. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it, Paul. Thanks again for joining us on the analysis.news. Again, please don't forget the donate button. Uh, we can't do this without your support. And also very important, the uh, subscribe to the email list. And also maybe even more important, please share all the analysis.news uh, stories. Uh, growing our audience is uh, perhaps the biggest help you can give us.